0: This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
1: Einstein. James Dean. Brooklyn's got a winning team. Davy Crockett. Peter Pan. Elvis Presley. Disneyland. Bardo. Budapest.
0: Budapest. Budapest. Budapest.
1: Budapest. Who's
0: the best? Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 5050 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world's like it is today. All done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that
1: is Billy Joel.
0: I'm Tom Fordyce.
1: I'm Katie Puckrick.
0: We're we starting some fires, Katie.
1: Oh, I am so toasty right now.
0: And our topic today is, and you said because because earlier you said this word and you had a delightful intonation, so... Budapest Budapest
1: It's it's two cities. This is one of these fun facts that as soon as you learn it, you can't help but be really annoying and dogmatic <laughs> and tell everybody else even though most people already know this, but two cities, Buda and Pest, separated by a river. I don't know the name of the river. Do you know the name is it of the, the river? Danube. Yes. Um I have been there once, just passed through road dog that I am. I was dancing on the 1991 Pet Shop Boys tour. We seemed to be in Eastern Europe for a very long time. But yes, so we stayed in a hotel that was extremely atmospheric and possibly was a former monastery, lots of bleak stone walls. Um, That's really all I can tell you about Budapest. How about you? you,
0: Can you remember, Casey, which Pet Shop Boys Classic went down best with the Budapestians?
1: You know what? They normally, over in Eastern Europe, anything that they can clap slowly yet rhythmically (laughs) to. (laughs) um, But by the time we got to our encore, which is You're Always On My Mind, they got their danders up. They got very excited and rhythmically clapped. Like they're at a sports event. (laughs) I mean, life is a sports event, isn't it?
0: It is in my head, Katie. Um, So we are not actually talking about Budapest as a city. We are talking about the Hungarian revolution or proto-revolution of 1956. And it's at this point that I feel I have to reference a book which blew my mind when I first read it. It's called Under the Frog and it is about the Hungarian Revolution. It's a novel, um, and it's one of those books, Katie, that you get handed by a friend with a sort of misty look in their eyes, and they say, you're going to love this, and you sort of think, yeah, I'll be the judge of that. And then you finish it, and then you become the misty-eyed friend passing it to someone else.
1: Ah. And so what was it about this book that uh, tickled your pickle?
0: Without spoiling it, if people do want to read Under the Frogs, the title, Katie, comes from... I'm told a Hungarian phrase where things can get no worse, which uh, to give it its full title is under a frog's arse at the bottom of a coal mine. You can get no lower than that. So that's the scenario this group of friends find themselves in. And they're sort of battling the secret police. They're also uh, battling just the sort of horrors of teenage life in in a city, in a land where there is very little. There's also an extraordinary eat-off, which is um, a sort of a side plot we don't need to concern ourselves with now. But it is a lovely book. And because its crescendo comes with the revolution and all that happens after revolution, which we'll talk about shortly, it is an absolute tearjerker as well.
1: Uh, well, I bet we're going to bring all of these emotions to vivid life. With our next guest, we are bringing back our communist bloc expert, host of the Bulgarian History Podcast, and the man skilled in boiling down complex political machinations into McNuggets of delectable authoritarian gossip, (laughs) Eric Halsey. Welcome, Eric.
2: That is quite an intro. I'll have to remember that one. Thank you so much for having me again. Always a pleasure. (laughs)
1: Well, so you used to live in Budapest, although now you're in Bulgaria. You lived in a district that was trashed? by the revolt and you remember seeing damage to buildings and memorials what what was happening there
2: yeah so i lived on uh, knizhi utsa which is not a very big street but it's kind of around the corner from the museum of applied arts which is one of those grand art nouveau palaces that uh, you'll you'll see on uh, postcards and things but i was about 2 blocks from uh, what's now called Korved negeter which is like the old Korved theater which was probably the number one location for the the fighting of the 1956 uprising so there were you know, little memorials, these kind of little bullet holes and nicks and things. And so when I first came there, I, I didn't really know much about the uprising, but I was quickly drawn in to learn about it because just seeing this stuff in my everyday life, walking around, it's like, what, what is that about? And like, wh- wh- why is there a, a flag with a hole in the middle of it? What could that possibly mean? So I was kind of slowly drawn in to, to learn more about this and, and the city that I spent a year in getting my master's degree.
0: So Eric, I wanna get my head around, first of all, what life would have been like in Hungary in the mid 50s because you get the sense that hungarians had been punched in the face by the nazis and then punched in the face by the red army and in fact most of the intervening years had been punched in the face by some subset of the above
2: yeah, Hungary was not in a great position here. You know, that, that, that's a that's a good kind of summary of, of what had happened because, yeah, Hungary fighting in the Second World War, you know, took enormous losses on the Eastern Front fighting for the Nazis. And then once they kind of were starting to explore, maybe trying to get out of the war, they were occupied by the Germans and sort of taken over and forced to continue fighting. Uh, and then once the Red Army came in, the the fighting there was particularly brutal. You know, Budapest was under siege. The retreating Germans blew up all of the uh, bridges over the river Danube and so uh, we talked before about how uh, Budapest was united actually to be that even more kind of pedantic friend out of three cities Budapest and Obuda but oh <laughs> but okay. no one cares or knows that <laughs> but you know imagine the, the city had been you know connected by all these big fancy bridges and, and had really kind of become one place and then t- all of a sudden, it's cut again for I think about two years until they rebuilt them. There were, there were no bridges anymore. You had to take a ferry or cross the frozen river in the in the winter if you were lucky. Uh, so. Coming out of the the 50s, you know, most young people, you had grown up during the war and you would experienced really rough years afterwards. You had hyperinflation because Hungary was paying something like a fifth of its economy to pay war reparations, mostly to the Soviet Union. You know, you had an arch Stalinist running things with torture, concentration camps or exile, I guess, if you were lucky. Um. You know, there was rationing of meat, of flour, of sugar. You know, all kinds of basics like that. And in general, by the early fifties, the average Hungarian had about sixty-six percent less disposable income than a Hungarian before the war. So life was bad, and, and you knew life was bad at this time, particularly for a young person.
1: And I understand that the Stalinist Hungarian government distinguished itself as one of the most vicious puppet regimes in Eastern Europe. For instance, the secret police was staffed by former fascist war criminals. So it was kind of like best of the best.
2: Yeah, you you really did just get the best of the best, uh, so to speak. Yeah, you just, just there was kind of a no no sympathy. And, you know, Hungary was such a loser of both the First World War and the Second World War. But it wasn't all hopeless because around this time, as we'll talk, there seemed to be some little glimpses some little uh, spots of light and you know for a young person living in budapest or in hungary it seemed like you know things are pretty bad but maybe they could get better because they seem to be getting a little better in places like poland
1: yeah yeah i wanted to ask you about that because uh, of course stalin's heirs were squabbling over a power struggle back at the kremlin but um those captive nations as they were known in the u.s were starting to fly the coop You had to uh, East Germans in in June 1953 and the Poles three years later. So uh, yeah, so that must have been very encouraging for the young people in Hungary.
2: Yeah, I mean, you looked at, you know, it's it's important to kind of keep that context that this is very early in the Cold War. And we have all this hindsight about like, well, obviously, the Soviet Union was going to kind of protect its sphere of influence with, uh, you know, blood and steel, should that be necessary. But it wasn't that you know, obvious at that point. And as you said, you know, you know the, the East Germans and the Poles had gotten some concessions, right? Yugoslavia had managed to kind of withdraw from the common form and to make itself kind of neutral. Austria had just declared neutrality in the Cold War. So, you know, for a Hungarian looking around, you're seeing, you know, other Eastern Bloc nations that are kind of liberalizing a little bit and getting some reforms, and other neighboring countries uh, just outright declaring neutrality and saying, yeah, may- maybe that could be us. Spoiler alert, it it, it cannot be you. But, you know, maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Eric, when you were talking through the communist bloc, we referenced the fact that Every single Soviet state had its own secret police and they all had their own initials. The one in Hungary is the AVH, which sounds okay. but they were a particularly brutal secret police, were they? So the little spasms that we might expect before the revolution itself in 1956, would these have been
2: crushed by the AVH? I mean, you would think, yeah, but one of the big differences in Hungary is that although Hungary had an incredibly, you know, uniquely for the time repressive state, in a way that repressive state felt a little more necessary because, you know, the Hungarian government was by this point tremendously unpopular. Uh, And as we'll see, it was unpopular in all kinds of areas of Hungarian society. You, you needed some secret police to, to kind of keep down uh, dissent and, and anger, but yeah, the the Hungarian secret police was really uh, uniquely brutal. And even today, you got the famous terror house in uh, in Budapest, which kind of commemorates a lot of the brutalities of uh, of the period.
0: So, if Katie and I were teenagers in this period in Budapest, what are the things we haven't got, Eric, and what are the things we can do is is there rationing? Can we hear any
2: Western music? Any Western news? So definitely rationing. Uh, I guess you could hear Western news. You know, if you were feeling daring and you had a, a radio, you could listen to Radio Free Europe. There was a, a Hungarian language uh, version of that. But, you know, you had to really keep that on the down low and be, be quite careful. Um, Western music. Sorry. Cats are. Uh, Lovely interlude from the cats.
1: Oh, which, yeah. so which cat is that?
2: That is Miet.
1: Oh, Miet. The, All right. The tiny She's weighing in.
2: gremlin creature. Let's see if i put her in my lap if i can get her to calm down so yeah if you're, you're a hungarian teenager at this time eh, maybe you can get some some western music i mean you know if it was particularly if it was smuggled in a little bit earlier i imagine that for most teenagers the idea of uh, getting their hands on some outside music was probably less important at this moment where you know you couldn't even get your hands on bread for a lot of the time. So,
1: yeah, and that was uh, particularly egregious seeing as how Hungary was considered the breadbasket of Eastern Europe and so they'd been absolutely decimated by uh, the takeover of the Stalinists. I wanted to get into a little bit about uh, Radio Free Europe which was uh, a project, a propaganda project from the CIA in America. And the idea was just basically to diss the Soviets, um, although they did broadcast Khrushchev's anti Stalinist speech, which was called On the Personality Cult and its consequences and uh, of course the goal of Radio Free Europe was not only to spread uh, Western pop music but also to contribute to the destabilization of the internal politics of the Warsaw Pact countries and um, As an American, I'm just kind of interested in what was the Western view and the American view of what was going on in Hungary. Like, were were they actively fomenting revolution or what were they doing? Because I've heard a few different things that they were kind of cynically just uh, paying lip service to it. So what do you know about this? Well,
2: you know, I, I I was reading up, and and there's a, a quote that Khrushchev gave uh, later on to a newspaper. He said something like uh, the, the Hungarians, what is it? He said, support by the United States is rather in the nature of the support that a rope gives a hanged man. <laughs> Good line, Khrushchev. Good line. It was a little fair, right? You know, the the CIA and Radio Free Europe, right? They're, yeah, they're trying to kind of promote some, ferment some kind of opposition to the Soviet system. But at the same time, you know, they weren't ready to back that up with troops, right? So they're walking a fine line, right? Trying to find ways to undermine uh, the Eastern Bloc, undermine the Soviet system. But as we'll see, like if things actually turn to uh, an actual uprising, if things turn military uh, they're not, you know, they're not ready to necessarily go to war with the Soviets uh, in the same case, and so, you know, I think the idea there is to walk that line, or possibly to see if, uh, you know, they could get one of these states to to leave the the Soviet bloc. This is early on in the in the in the Cold War, and there was no way that uh, you know the CIA would necessarily know how the Soviets would respond. So, for all they knew, you know, helping to kind of ferment some of this revolution would mean that you know maybe Hungary would successfully become a neutral nation like Austria or Yugoslavia.
0: Eric, we are of course a podcast about starting fires. So, what are the sparks underneath this revolution?
2: So, you know, the the main one is obviously just that people are very upset, people are not happy with the Hungarian government, not happy with the Hungarian regime, and that they see the possibility of change with their neighbors, Uh, you know, all their neighbors from from Poland and East Germany to Austria and Yugoslavia. And so that was the kind of bedrock of everything that happened. But You know, things really got going when some students in Seged, uh, a city in Hungary, kind of reformed a student union, a communist student union for the record. But, you know, already under Stalinism, plenty of communists are not the right type of communists. And so, you know, off to the camps with them. So they kind of reformed this communist student union that had been banned previously and issued some demands for things like free elections and the departure of Soviet troops. And soon more and more students in the country are starting to kind of gather and demonstrate in favor of those demands. Um, And within 10 days, and what's really remarkable about this whole uprising is how fast it happened. So, you know, a week and a half after the very first meeting of these students in Seged, you've got mass demonstrations. 20,000 people gather to protest in Budapest. And by the end of that day, the crowd turns to 200,000 people who are protesting, who are demanding uh, some of these reforms. They they travel to the parliament building and they demand that Imre Noz, who is one of the only popular Hungarian politicians at the time, you know, come give a speech. And he does, he comes, he speaks to them and he says, well, you know, you should probably all disperse because uh, I'm not so sure about this. But, you know, I'll I'll, ta- I'll handle the reforms. Just leave it to me. I'll handle this. No need for you all to keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Don't worry about it. Uh, everything's great. And they did not listen to him.
1: Well, he's trying to thread a needle, isn't he? Because he's trying to, like, stay on side with them, but also pacify his handlers back at the Kremlin.
2: That's exactly right. He's trying to, to thread a needle. But uh, yeah, the the crowd They did not listen. And soon they were, you know, for example, singing a band song which had these lyrics, you know, this we swear, this we swear, we will no longer be slaves. Uh, And by that evening, the the I think I think it was prime minister or head of the party, Erno Gero broadcast a speech just absolutely denouncing them. And so this is a critical moment, right, where the question is, will the government kind of be open to some of these demands? How will they respond? And their response is absolutely categorically no. And uh, shocker, the, the, the crowd did not take that well. And within about an hour and a half, they had torn down a statue of Stalin and clashed with secret police outside the National Radio Building as they tried to get in to broadcast their demands to the country. And within a short period of time, shots were fired. And so this is just a few hours from an initial small protest of twenty thousand people to shots fired and the the crowd of st- or the the statue of Stalin has been torn down and they have
1: weapons. I understand the statue of Stalin. The only thing left were just his boots on the plinth. Yep.
2: Yeah, and they they stuck flags in the in the boots to kind of commemorate it. And and that that's also at some point in the day you start to get the the number one kind of symbol of this revolution, which. Is such a powerful symbol where they basically take the Hungarian flag, which has a communist emblem in the middle, and they just snip, 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 cut that emblem out. And so you have this flag with a hole in the middle of it. Mm. And for example, later on in 89, I believe in like Romania, they had the same flag. They cut the communist symbol out of the middle of the Romanian flag. And this became a, a kind of easy way to, you know, take uh, your run of the mill flag of a communist dictatorship and suddenly transform it into a symbol of uh, of kind of rebellion without anything except maybe a knife or a pair of scissors.
1: Yeah, powerful. And, and also it's like the ultimate, uh, you're canceled.
2: Yeah, absolutely. and And it's just such a powerful visual. I mean, I encourage listeners to Google what this looked like because again, you know, me as a young student in Budapest, seeing that for the first time, I'm like, what is that? What, what, what's just a flag with a hole in the middle of it? What, what could that possibly mean? But, you know, obviously I was less familiar, but for, for anyone living at the time, you knew what belonged in that hole. You know what was yeah. previously there and it was very clear what the symbol meant.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's vandalism, it's punk rock.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So whilst this is taking place, I imagine, Eric, there is some twitching of um, rear ends going on in Moscow as they're watching this revolution begin.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, it, Moscow at this point, they haven't really heard too much. I mean, at some point uh, later in the day, once, you know, because by the evening, by the night, uh, the protesters start to become armed. They start taking some weapons from the secret police and other secret police and, and military folks start to get sent in to stop them. And a lot of them actually join the, the uh, kind of uprising and help them gather more weapons. And so. Again, within a few hours of this starting, it's gone from a, a little, you know, not, not small, but not huge uh, peaceful protest to basically it's already an armed insurrection, you know, the people have guns. And so you know, Erno Gerö, within that first twenty-four hours, requests Soviet military intervention because few things make a a, a kind of dic- quasi dictator more nervous than that.
1: Yeah, and and you mentioned the Hungarian troops who were caught between their loyalties to the Kremlin and to their fellow Hungarians and decided to decide with their countrymen. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Pal Maláter, the military leader of the Hungarian Revolution. He's a six foot eight inch tall guy with exceedingly mobile eyebrows, Uh, (laughs) noted for his courage and daring. I uh, encourage anyone to uh, look up Pal Malater and his eyebrows. Um, But yeah, he changed sides to join the insurgents after being sent by the puppet government to crush them. What, What can you tell me about him?
2: Yeah, he's an interesting character. So he was well familiar with the with this whole uh, switching sides when when needing to not to say that it was all bad, but you know he had originally fought in the Royal Hungarian Army against the Soviets on the Eastern Front alongside the Nazis before he was captured by the Soviets, became a communist, returned to kind of engage in sabotage actions against the Germans, uh, and so of course he was a part of the post-war Hungarian Army uh, and. He was the highest ranking person who, when sent to go crush those rebels, said, no, they, they seem they seem all right to me. Uh, and so he joined them as a colonel. But once things progressed, he was soon uh, promoted to general and made minister of defense and basically was soon in charge of the rather hopeless and thankless task of defending Hungary against the Red Army. Jumping ahead a little bit, he he gets imprison, imprisoned and executed uh, when he is trying to protest to the Red Army that their invasion violates international law. I think we we can all see where where he went wrong with that, but trying to to argue the the subtleties of international law with the Red Army is probably not going to get you very far. And so sadly, he did not make it you know many years after the end of this whole uh, this whole uprising. But he is kind of seen as one of the heroes of the uprising, and funnily enough, I think there's a species of pine tree named after him because he was a very tall man
1: uh, I believe it's a dwarf pine. Quite uh, humorously named after him. It's a species of dwarf pine.
2: The Hungarians have a sense of humor. Yes. Every
0: every little plot twist you've just introduced us to in Powell's life, Eric, I'm imagining that he reacts to you by moving those very mobile eyebrows. Like one goes up, what, well, the Russians are coming. Two go up. What, well, they're sending the whole Red Army in. The eyebrows will express everything he's going through.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess he he's just lucky he wasn't against the Brezhnev era Soviet Union because then he would have really had to face uh, a, a truly imposing set of eyebrows i don't know if he could have stood up
0: (laughs) (laughs) magnificent eyebrows (laughs) magnificent eyebrows um katie i hope this isn't indecorous of me but i have noticed a single bead of perspiration has appeared on your forehead to match the two beads of perspiration on mine this is a signal to me that we need a short break for some adverts before we return in a moment hello there this is my friend joe hi Now, Joe plays rugby for England.
1: Yeah, what's your point? Come on.
0: Well, Joe presents a podcast and it's my firm belief that you should listen to it. Very interesting. And here's why, because it's not actually a rugby podcast because, well, let's face it, there's billions of them already. No, 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 no. It's about you, the listener, and the jobs you do. If you're a teacher, an astronaut, a tree surgeon or a chef. Then we've got loads of questions for you. The Joe Marler Show. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. That's a great line. That's a that is a very good line from you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. You want to find it? Search for the Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. So there seems to be this period, Eric, once the revolution begins and the streets are full of protesting Hungarians, there seems to be this glorious and actually, in retrospect, quite melancholy window where everyone thinks, hang on,
2: we might get away with this. Yeah, it, it did seem like that for a bit. You know, the, the Red Army tried to go in and occupy Budapest. You know, they, they took some key positions and uh, Noj became prime minister again, the guy who had given the speech nervously trying to, you know, say, yeah, we can do some uh, reforms, but uh, maybe you should all go home. And at this point, the a few things kind of go wrong. The Soviets are kind of backing off a little bit. And a lot of senior government officials are actually fleeing the country. A lot of Hungarians are, in that sense, sort of accepting defeat. But what, where the problems really lie is what happens after the Soviets back off. Is you know, Absent that pressure, a lot of pro-Soviet Hungarians are executed as traitors. There's basically a lot of lynchings in the street. And the new Norsh government tries to talk to the Soviets and obtain some more concessions. They dissolve the secret police. And Basically, the Soviets are looking at all this and seeing a lot of their recent supporters get murdered in the streets and seeing kind of the direction things are going, and they do not like it. And so fairly quickly, the Soviets decide, no, 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 okay, this is a mistake. This needs to be crushed. This is totally unacceptable. Uh, And right after that, Hungary takes things even further and withdraws in the Warsaw Pact and declares neutrality. And so the Soviets are even more like, absolutely not. No, 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 and no. This needs to end.
0: So had they progressed a little bit more slowly, Eric, are we thinking, because they've basically got a rocket and shoved it up the Russian bear. If they had just poked the Russian bear slightly more gently,
2: would they have got away with it? Honestly, I think it's possible. You know, as I think we might talk about later, this is also when the Suez crisis was happening. And so this was a uniquely, particularly bad time for the Hungarians to try to do all all of this, because for the Soviets, they had the the political backing to to go in there and just absolutely crush this uh, this kind of revolt because, well, look at what the Westerners were doing to Egypt. They were invading to kind of kind of reinforce their circle of interest. So you know, how could they say this is uh, anything different? It's just total hypocrisy. So, you know, the Soviets had that perfect, perfect excuse for what they were doing. But yeah, a little little time had passed. Maybe they wouldn't have had that excuse. Things could have turned out differently.
0: Eric, take us into the streets of Budapest Then, in this period where the Red Army tanks are rolled in and Khrushchev has determined that he's going to crush this revolution before it gets going. Take us onto those streets when the tanks are rolling down and you've got what two hundred thousand mainly young Hungarians with homemade bombs, like you say, with Molotov cocktails in in beer bottles, and they've got rifles taken from the secret police. What's the scene like?
2: Well, it's a little bit. So remember, there are there are these two distinct periods of fighting. Right, there's that first little brief bit of fighting before the before the kind of uh, ceasefire and before things calm down, and then there's that second piece of fighting. And the big difference between them is that in that first kind of burst of fighting with the the Red Army. The Soviets are forbidden from using artillery or airstrikes. And so it's a lot tougher for them to, to kind of move in. All they really got is their, their tanks and their infantry. But in that second time, they are fully, you know, they, they get carte blanche. They are allowed to use artillery, they are allowed to use airstrikes. You know, that means they, they're, they're willing to basically blow a building to smithereens if that's what it takes. So that first time, right, the 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 kind of rebels, they have a lot more success because they they can kind of act with some impunity, right? They can get behind a building and they can be relatively uh, safe there or kind of retreat into some of the windier streets out of the big boulevards. You know, at that point, it's a lot of small arms fire, you know, people opening a window on the third, fourth, fifth floor and yeah, tossing out their Molotov cocktails to, uh, on a tank, which you imagine if you're those tank crews, it's got to be terrifying because, you know, at, at any moment, Uh, You could basically have fire raining down on you from any of the hundreds of windows lining the streets on either side of you, and there's just really not much you can do about it.
0: Eric, could you just briefly talk us through a a Molotov cocktail for those who may be thinking of a a beverage over ice? Just talk us through the, the origins of the Molotov cocktail and why it was so effective in those streets.
2: Yeah, it was jokingly named after Vyacheslav Molotov, the Russian, or the Soviet rather, foreign minister during the Second World War. Basically, it's you, you take some kind of a glass bottle, you fill it with something flammable, you know, it could be. Uh, vodka or something, you know, some something with a fairly high alcohol content or like gasoline, some kind of fuel. You light the rag on fire and you toss it. And what that does is create a little bomb where it comes on impact and the glass breaks. All of a sudden, the flaming rag comes into contact with all the other stuff and you get a lot of fire. And this is incredibly effective against tanks. If you don't have, you know, an anti-tank gun, something that can bust through all that armor, a Molotov cocktail basically douses the tank in flames. And this can, I think in different cases, it could suck the oxygen you know, the, out of the tank or make the tank incredibly hot and kind of disrupt uh, the people inside that way or just damage it some, some other ways. But it's one of these cases where uh, a fairly rudimentary homemade bomb can actually take out a, a modern tank. But yeah, ever, ever since then, even today, it's it's kind of a symbol of you know, the 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 powerless against the powerful because it, it really is one of these kind of makeshift weapons that can uh, relatively even out a, a military conflict between people who don't have many resources and people who have a lot of resources.
0: Casey, I find myself thinking, as often with these episodes that we do on this podcast, how you and I would have reacted if we'd been in this historical situation. If we'd been young people in Budapest at this point, whether we would have been manning the barricades, whether we'd been leaning out of our windows, throwing Molotov cocktails at the Russian tanks, or maybe we would have been keeping our heads down and just keeping our fingers crossed.
1: I think there's something about uh, the fact that it was a groundswell of pride, you know, pride in your people. The fact that it was a youth movement that, you know, us as young people in the surroundings, we would have been tasting a little bit of freedom and had a had a little twinkling of what our future could be like. I think that that would uh, put a little fire in our bellies. I I would, for one, be somebody dropping a Molotov cocktail out of the top floor. Certainly, this is a conflict that. Uh, activated the empathy and the interest and the sympathy of people all over the world. Even on the Ed Sullivan Show is reading that on Sunday, the 28th of October, 1956, uh, Ed Sullivan featured... 21 year old Elvis Presley, who was headlining on the show for the second time. And Sullivan asked viewers to send aid to the Hungarian refugees. And then uh, Elvis himself made another request for donations on his third appearance on the show on the 6th of January, 1957. And he dedicated a gospel song, Peace in the Valley, to the Hungarians. And By the end of 1957, these contributions distributed by the Red Cross as food rations and clothing and other essentials uh, apparently amounted to the equivalent of $55.5 million in today's money. So uh, apparently uh, Elvis is now an honorary citizen. The mayor of Budapest made him an honorary citizen in 2011.
2: And there's a street named after him, although it's apparently a kind of a dirt road outside Outside of town. Oh,
1: but. I, don't, I like to hear that it's a dirt road. That's
2: Roots Elvis, though, isn't it? It's Early Elvis. Yeah, yeah Early
1: Elvis. There you go.
2: <laughs> yeah, getting back to Tupelo.
0: I like this story, Eric, as well, of the way that the ripples spread across the world. So at the Olympics in Melbourne in 1956, which are in December... Fate throws together in the water polo, because water polo is a massive sport in Hungary, isn't it? They? They're very much into their swimming, a lot of open air pools, they love their water polo. Fate throws together in the quarter final of the men's water polo competition, the Soviet Union and
2: Hungary.
1: Oh.
2: And it ends in a massive boot off. Yeah. I mean, if you can imagine, this is about one month after the crushing of the uprising. And so, you know, it's not like this is, uh, you know, a while later. This is right after it happened. One side Mm. had overwhelming support, the other side had virtually none. And so the, the Hungarian athletes and their water polo team, they were very excited to have the opportunity to kind of get back at the Soviets in a way that wouldn't get them all, you know, thrown in a gulag or something Yeah. even for the crowd i mean th- this match was intense at some point you know one soviet player punches a hungarian player and leads him bleeding thus the blood in the water match as it's famously called and you know the crowd got so angry and so incensed and shouted so much abuse at the soviet team that you know the olympic organizers were worried there'd be a riot and eventually had to just remove the crowd which i, I can't think of when that's happened at the olympics they had to remove the crowd to prevent a riot from happening but that's just how uh, how bad the Soviets looked,
1: and the fact that it's a you know water polo, which isn't normally one of those bloodthirsty sports uh, in the best of times. Um, and anyone who's interested can have a look online and, and see some very dramatic pictures of uh, a very fit Hungarian man in a speedos with uh, blood pouring down his face.
0: And of course, happily, Katie, Hungary end up winning four uh, nil, go through to a semi final against Yugoslavia, and go on to take the Olympic gold in the water polo.
1: And even more happily, the Hungarian player Ervin Zador, who got punched, ended up defecting along with a, a few of his fellow players. So he just thought, saw so, that I'm not going. I'm not going back to Eastern Europe. I'm out. Me and my speedos are out.
2: <laughs> well yeah, you imagine at this point he's a Hungarian hero, but at the same time to, you know, to the Hungarian people, maybe not so much to the Hungarian government. So it might have been a good call on on his part. He wasn't the only young
0: person to try and escape the regime, was he Eric? There was a a large diaspora who tried to cross over often through the border with Austria under the cover of darkness or sneaking out on trains, people, young people who just thought Right, we've tried to change it. The
2: change hasn't happened. Let's live our lives somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, in in the time right after this all ended, almost two hundred thousand Hungarians fled the country. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the population of Hungary was then. Now it's about ten million. So, you know, two hundred thousand people. That's a, a fairly you know, that's a few percentage of the country's entire population that left and you know it it was no surprising I I keep saying it but you know this was a mass uprising and it had wide support and so it's not like it was just a small group of people and so all the reprisals were going to be kind of confined no tens of thousands of people were imprisoned hundreds of people were executed and a lot of people as you said they kind of decided you know what it's clear, you know, before we believed that maybe things could get better, you know, maybe we could have a little a little bit of liberalization, a little bit of freedom. But that seems very unlikely now. And so we're just getting out.
1: So, Eric, I'm wondering, um, I wanted to ask you about this. The Hungarian uprising is the last time that the Kremlin launched a full scale military attack in its Eastern European umpire. But now Russia is seem to be amassing soldiers on the borders of Ukraine. I'm wondering if we're going to see a little uh, part de on this one.
2: Well, I I think on that first part, it depends on how you see it. I mean, there was the crushing of the Prague Spring uh, just over a decade later. But granted, that wasn't just the Red Army. That was the entire Warsaw Pact uh, invading one of its members to restore order. So it's, it's a little bit similar, though definitely much less bloody. It is true that, you know Russia's uh, modern history and modern being last you know two plus centuries has really been defined by a, a perception of their sphere of influence and the the importance in their mind of expanding that sphere of influence to protect themselves. And you know, Russia has traditionally really believed it has the right to act with impunity in preserving that sphere of influence, regardless of what the locals think. you know their their opinion is not taken into consideration. You know I've got friends in in Ukraine, and I, I really worry for them. and, you know, one of the important outcomes of the Second World War was this idea that war is not the way to change a border, right? If you want to take some territory or something, you know, maybe you both join the European Union and then it doesn't matter so much. Or or maybe you try to do it kind of democratically or or peacefully. Or, you know, if you're going to, you know, break up a country, you break it up along kind of existing lines to help discourage people from, you know, engaging in wars to change where those lines might be, which is the lesson of kind of Yugoslavia. And the fact that Russia has decided to kind of throw all that out the window and reopen the idea that, well, if you want some territory, you know, if you uh, engage in a little guerrilla warfare, mass some tanks and things, you can pretty much get what you want, that that's a very dangerous precedent to reintroduce to Europe. And so I, I worry a lot seeing it. And, and I hope we never have to see anything quite like the 56 uprising again. Well, you know what they say, Katie, history repeats itself. And it has to because no one listens.
1: I'm listening. I'm paying full attention, Tom. (laughs) And paying full attention to you, Eric Halsey. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for making it all come alive for us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to talk about uh, my my former home, Budapest. And yeah, I encourage people uh, to go visit the city. You can see a lot of the remnants there and uh, lots of ways to kind of dive deeper.
1: And uh, also, just before we go... um, I'm always thinking of my stomach first. Uh, what is a delicious Hungarian dish that you enjoyed when you lived there that we could possibly taste?
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's almost a cliche to say goulash, but uh, goulash is quite tasty. I, I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy, I appreciate that. Something a little weirder that you probably people have not heard of or tried is they have these kind of fruit soups. I remember going to the kind of canteen in my university and you'd see this like bright purple soup you're like, what in God's earth is that? <laughs> like, what is that? Yeah. And it, it's basically, you'll have like kind of a berry flavored, somewhat sweet dessert soup. Uh, I'm not even sure what it was called. It's been, you know, almost 10 years, but, uh, but you can Google around and find that. And that's definitely, you know, that can be a fun dish to make because it's going to certainly surprise some dinner guests and make them also wonder what on earth you might be serving them.
1: Well, number one, Eric, I love how fruit soup just sounds like an insult, you <laughs> fruit soup. And number two, is it cold or hot, this fruit soup?
2: It is cold.
1: Okay. Sounds a little barfy, but uh, but also could be palatable on a hot summer's day. Yeah,
2: a little like the, the Bulgarian tarotor, the, our cold cucumber soup.
1: Oh, okay. Seems like anything can be made into a soup if you're in Hungary.
2: I'm getting my
0: own uprising in my guts right now, cancer. <laughs>
1: I loved that conversation. Um, Eric Halsey is fantastic at just making something that's happened way before our time live. Live again. He's made it vivid.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Katie. And if you would like more Eric, you can subscribe to his podcast, which, appropriately enough, is called The Bulgarian History Podcast.
1: Yeah, and he's not... Splashing around in the shallows like we are with the <laughs> like the last fifty years of the twentieth century. Like he goes deep uh, into medieval Bulgaria. I mean, did they exist? Yes, they existed. They had kings and queens, and they went medieval on each other's asses. <laughs> so there was all sorts going on, and fruit soup, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: Katie, this is one of these references from our great leader, Billy, where I feel hugely impressed by him because he might have been a kid growing up in Long Island and not given two hoots about the stuff that was going on thousands of miles away. But he did.
1: Yeah. So this is this is cool. This is him showing his uh, his worldly credentials. He's not just Following his local baseball stars and he's not just uh, slobbering over Brigitte Bardot or fondly reminiscing about a trip to Disneyland. No, he's got his finger on the pulse of world events. So I think this reflects well on him. And reflects well on us for following him down this path.
0: (laughs) I couldn't agree more, Katie. And we follow up next week with another huge topic from 20th century history. That is Alabama. So it will be all about Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycotts, which also marked the start of Martin Luther King's rise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The crucible of the civil rights movement there in Alabama in the mid 50s. And uh, to tide you over till then, I've got another podcast for you. It's called Murder in House 2. It's a 10-part series that's taken 15 years to make. And if you love true crime podcasts, you will love this.
0: Yeah, it's the story of how a group of Marines went into a village in the Iraq War and killed 24 innocent civilians, a lot of them women and children. It's an unbelievable story, especially because it reveals some never-before-heard top-secret recordings. Check it out. Just search for Murder in House 2 in your podcast
1: app. Mm, Sounds grim, but good. And you know what? You can follow us and subscribe at Spread That Fire. And you can email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk.
0: And, Katie, we have one more slogan for our ever burgeoning merch range, which is
1: (laughs) fruit soup. fruit soup we're going to add it to pedendum power and damp cloth utopia
0: crowd network a place where you belong
2: And with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.